Managing your 401k is hard. Bloom isn't. See what you could be doing to make your 401k better by getting a free analysis at bloom401k.com slash fool. That's bloom with three O's, 401k.com slash fool. Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best thing in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's a Motley Fool Money radio show. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio this week, senior analyst Jason Moser, Andy Cross, and Ron Gross. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Hey, you do. We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street. We've got CNBC host Becky Quick as our guest. And as always, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. But we begin with the biggest public company getting even bigger. Here's the only thing Apple did in its second quarter. Double-digit growth in revenue, double-digit growth on the bottom line. And oh yeah, Andy, they announced an additional stock buyback plan of $100 billion. Amazing. And this was just a monster quarter for Apple. And then uh, Warren Buffett announced that he bought 70, through Berkshire Hathaway, bought 75 million more shares during the first quarter. That's more almost $13 billion. So, the the uh, the real exciting part with Apple is they demonstrated that they are becoming truly more than just the iPhone. While iPhone still makes up sixty percent of their sales, their services now are fifteen percent of their sales at nine billion last quarter, up thirty one percent, and the wearables revenue, believe it, wearables were up fifty percent. So this wow. the services like Apple Music, Apple Pay, iCloud, uh, you know the app, the storage. So they really are becoming this different um, uh, business than just a hardware company. Yeah. Yeah, incredible quarter. And from the Buffett perspective, he didn't buy this for a trade, right? He sees long-term potential. He thinks of this as a consumer products company that is just getting it done and making products that people like, and that they'll continue to do that for years and years, if not decades and decades. And you know, if it's good enough for him, I think it's good enough for me to hang on as <laughs> yeah, well. Yeah, I mean, he liquidated his entire IBM stake in the process yep. too, right? Which, I mean, Big Blue, that's that's been a core Buffett holding for for many years. Uh, so to see this shift, I think tells you a lot. But I think he's right. I mean, no Apple is not necessarily the growth story that it once was, but it doesn't have to be. I mean, it's it's a very powerful brand. They make excellent consumer products. I mean, I think the one thing the question mark I still have is just from the global perspective, given what we know about Android's operating system, um, its its domination of that global market share. You just you kind of wonder about how far Apple can take this beyond like the North American market and and perhaps uh, more more uh, established markets. But but regardless, phenomenal company, tremendous resources. It's hard to imagine uh, not owning shares of this business. I mean, the China business was awesome, especially with the iPhone X. So I mean, they continue to see growth over there. But their subscription, their paid subscriptions are now two hundred and seventy million. That was up from $100 million last year, Chris. So, they continue to see growth in this area. And that's really where the growth is going to be. Even Buffett mentioned that today in his interview with CNBC. Let me go back to Jason's point for a second, because for a number of years, there was a legitimate question being asked of Apple with regards to essentially going down market. Should they be doing this? Should they be offering a, a much cheaper version of the iPhone to really get the kind of global penetration that you're talking about? I kind of feel like that's been put to rest now, that given all of their success, given that they're now a $925 billion company and probably going to be the first one to a trillion market cap, uh, it seems like they almost don't need to. No, and I mean, I think it's just keeping everything in context, too, right? I mean, it's hard to sit there and criticize a company for selling 
50 million iPhones per quarter and bringing in these billions and millions of dollars in free cash flow year in and year out. And so, I mean, it makes sense for them to try to expand their consumer base and give something for as many people out there that might want it. And we're seeing that play out iPad strategy, for example. I don't know that it worked out necessarily as well on the phone side, but again, it doesn't really have to. I mean, they do something really well. It's not a one, it's not in a winner take all market. So, I mean, as long as they continue to sort of pursue these other options beside you know, the iPhone services and whatnot, I mean, I think the business is going to do just fine. Shares of Tesla down a bit this week after losing a record amount of money in the first quarter. That was still better than Wall Street was expecting. The results of Tesla's quarter took a backseat to the conference call with analysts in which CEO Elon Musk said the questions were, and I'm quoting here, boring, not cool, and boneheaded. <laughs> the following day, not Musk cool. appeared to backtrack a little bit, saying, quote, I should have answered their questions live. It was foolish of me to ignore them. What do you think, Jason? I mean, maybe this is going to be somewhat of a polarizing uh, subject here. Personally, I mean, listen, I actually kind of agree with the spirit of what Musk <laughs> did here. I mean, I do like the fact that he's getting up there and saying, listen, I mean, a lot of these questions are kind of boneheaded, not really uh, relevant to what I'm trying to do here in building a business for the long haul, right? But that goes back to the discussion we've always had about Tesla. Is it a car company? Is it a battery company? Is it an energy company? Well, it seems like it's a little bit of, of all three. We talk a lot about the fact that maybe it would be better if Musk does not do these calls anymore, and probably he would benefit from taking a page out of the book of Jeff Bezos and not doing them. The biggest problem there, though, and the reason why I think he can't afford to do that is because he is Tesla's biggest evangelist. He's the one that gets out there, whether it's on Twitter or the calls, and really puts investors and the public in a great positive frame of mind about this company. If he stops doing that, I think the market more quickly starts valuing this company as a car company, and that's a big problem for them because they are going to need to raise more capital at some point or another. Well, to that point too, Jason, so there were a lot of questions about the capital and he brushed those off and yeah. and did not really address them. When what's interesting is if he does need if they do need to go to the markets to get capital, they have to go to those Wall Street banks or to investors to get that. And when you're so dismissive of them in such the way that he was, uh, that just <laughs> it'll be very interesting to see. Either he's like, you know, they're going to come to me no matter what because of the growth company we are, or he just doesn't care. Yeah, and if you're going to use the media and the analytical community to make grandiose statements and sell yourself and your company, then you also have to have the other side of the coin where you have to answer their questions as well. You can't have it one, you know, just your way. Interesting week for Activision Blizzard. Shares of the video game maker were up on Friday after first quarter revenue came in at a record just shy of $2 billion. Uh, kind of noteworthy, Ron, because Activision Blizzard didn't release any new games this quarter. No new games. They did um, launch their Overwatch Video Game League, which actually has been pretty successful, but you're right. So, really successful quarter. Revenue up 14% on the backs of uh, Call of Duty World War II, which is uh, their latest um, Call of Duty game. Candy Crush, believe it or not, I can't believe that whole thing. But That's still happening? People still love the Candy Crush. Um, doing really well. They raised for your guidance slightly. I think, interestingly, even though they raised guidance, I think it was a little shy of what um, analysts were hoping to see. So, I think there was a little bit of disappointment there. But I think the bigger story here 
is kind of the evolution of video games and what we're seeing right now with these games that, that are called Battle Royale games, Fortnite being the one that people have mostly uh, heard of, I think, that have taken the video game industry literally by storm. I've never seen anything like it um, in my house, for sure. I know that's an anecdotal evidence of one, but it, it's a big, big deal. And Activision and, and companies like Activision need to kind of step up and figure out a strategy to battle that. And, and they're doing things like releasing updated versions of their games and new modes of play. Um, but it is a serious competition that they need to, to be aware of. There was also a little bit of unexpected drama with Activision Blizzard <laughs> because their earnings report somehow was released early by Dow Jones, and it was incorrect. Yeah, the revenue <laughs> was much lower. I feel like Dow Jones needs to send a fruit basket to headquarters. Yes, yeah, so as you say, two mistakes. Information released early. It was, it's embargoed until a certain time, is the fancy term for it, and they, they kind of forgot about the embargo. And then the, the, the revenue number was actually the 2017 revenue number, not the 2018. <laughs> so somebody made a bit of a boo-boo there. <laughs> they better make sure it doesn't happen or again. Or some computer algorithm Yeah, did. something. Let's move on to e-commerce and specifically the battle for Flipkart, which is one of the leading e-commerce companies in India. As we came into the studio, there were multiple reports that Walmart is finalizing a deal to take majority ownership of Flipkart. Google's parent company, Alphabet, is also reportedly participating in this deal. Amazon was bidding as well, Andy, but at the moment it looks like Walmart is about to gain a nice share of the e-commerce pie in one of the biggest markets in the world. Yeah, Chris, and the Alphabet connection may have put this over the edge for Walmart as we as as of right now at least. I mean, they're buying 75%. It values Flipkart at about 20 billion. That's up from where it was valued um, apparently at 12 billion last year. India's a 1.3 billion people. Um, Probably around 500 million of those are online. So the growth opportunity for this market is just huge. And as we know, Walmart needs to continue to build out their e-commerce solutions around the globe, and they see this as a key component to that philosophy. Yeah, I think that uh, Andy's point there, India is obviously huge. Um, I think quarter in, quarter out, so many questions of China and you know capitalizing on the opportunity there. And it seems like India is one that was overlooked for so long. We saw in Amazon's uh, shareholder letter this year from Jeff Bezos, India got its own bullet point, right? Yeah. I mean, obviously, a very big point of, of focus for the company, and, and that is because of the size of the population. You're also looking at a country right now where GDP per capita is around $1,800 or so. No, that's that's not high at all, Chris. But that's the point, right? It is the opportunity for growth there. There, There is uh, nowhere to go f- but up for that. Number. You know, it was founded by 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 uh, two gentlemen named Bansal who are not related. Um, Sachin and Binny, they're not related. They met in, in, in college and they're, and they're young. They're like in their mid-30s. So, um, apparently, they will continue to be able to be tied to uh, Flipkart, where that might not have happened with Amazon. And also, Amazon's such a big player in India, as Jason mentioned, that there might be regulatory concerns if Amazon was to be the winner for the Flipkart bidding uh, war. Coming up, more earnings and a few stocks you can add to your watch list. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Quick thanks to Bloom for supporting this week's Motley Fool Money. Do you have a 401k? Do you remember how frustrating it was deciding what to invest in without professional help? Well, now there's a better way to grow your 401k. Bloom. Bloom with three O's. It is a simple, smart, and affordable way to grow your 401k. You can go online to bloom401k.com fool and then simply connect your existing 401k in a few easy steps then sit back and relax while Bloom performs an unbiased analysis of the funds in your account 
and chooses the best mix to meet your goals while minimizing hidden investment fees. Getting your investments right does not have to be hard or painful or time-consuming. Bloom only takes five minutes, and then your retirement is set until you cancel. And they link to your existing 401k so you don't have to move your money. Bloom is so simple that the hardest thing about Bloom is remembering that there are three O's in the name Bloom. Go to bloom401k.com fool. Enter the promo code fool for your first month free and see the difference that Bloom could make in your retirement. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Andy Cross, Jason Moser, and Ron Gross. Bad week for Snap. The social media company's first quarter report featured a slew of misses on revenue and on daily active users, and shares of Snap down 25% this week. You tell me, Jason, is this the time to buy or do you see more pain? No, it's definitely not the time to buy. <laughs> I'm going to interrupt you right there. Let's not entertain this discussion. More pain to come? Yeah, listen, I think the amazing thing about this company is after laying that egg that they laid this quarter, that it's still around a $13 billion company. And Mac asked in the production meeting, you know, is this, is it? Cheap now, and and I think to your point, to Max's question there, no, it's not. I mean, when you unprofitable businesses look expensive all the time, right? And that's because we need to try to get an idea of how profitable they can be and when they're going to get there. And I think that what we got from this quarter with Snap uh, is that it's not going to be anytime soon. And even if it does happen, it's questionable as to whether it will be really meaningful at all. Uh, I've heard you talk before about your uh, appreciation of listening to conference calls because you get the tone. Of management from them, and I think that I get the same thing. And listening to this call, you get the tone of a management team that is clearly in over their heads. Yeah. Uh, I just don't see the path for this company, at least in the near term. They have an app that they 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 do well with Snapchat, but it is a limited audience there, and it doesn't have the same network effects that something like a Facebook or even a Twitter has. Spectacles will fail spectacularly. Okay, <laughs> I can't believe they doubled down on it, but but that's going to be another write-off, and so I think that this thing has further to go. Yeah, the daily active users were up fifteen percent year over year, only two percent sequentially. And here's the kicker for me: is when they said in the call, we are planning for our Q2 growth rate to decelerate substantially from Q1 levels. Is that a problem? That doesn't sound real good to me, Chris. <laughs> the thing that had me shaking my head was I saw different reports of Snap's app update and different media outlets referring to them as saying, well, there were mixed reviews. Well, mixed reviews suggest that there were reviews saying, this is amazing. And pretty much every review and the celebrities that we talked about said, this thing is terrible and I'm <laughs> getting rid of it right now. Let's move on to Shake Shack. First quarter profits came in higher than expected. The burger chain also raised guidance for the full fiscal year and the stock was up 23% on Friday, Ron. Oof, man! I don't know. I, you know, I still don't get the valuation here. It, but you can't you can't argue with solid results. You know, revenue up twenty nine percent, beating estimates. Get this: same shack sales, not same store sales. Same shack sales were up one point seven percent. And you got adjusted pro forma net income after you adjust for some wonky things up fifty four percent. So you know, amazing. Um, guidance was good. Um, they're building towards two hundred domestic company operated shacks by the end of twenty. 2020. Their long-term target is 450. They're at about 100 now. So theoretically, the growth rate is there to support this valuation, which is in excess of 25 times EBITDA. Um, it's not an investment for me. I've actually never been in one, but they're building one around the corner from my house.
while, so stay tuned. Um, uh, so great results. Stock's not for me. You know what? If Zillow can have the Zestimate, they can <laughs> they have can. same shack sales. This past week kicked off with Merger Monday living up to its name. T-Mobile announced it is buying Sprint for $26 billion in stock. This is the third time the two companies have attempted to get together. Jason, both stocks down this week. Wall Street does not think this deal is going through. Well, Chris, I'm going to bet against Wall Street. I think the third time's a charm here. I think this deal absolutely gets approved. Uh, to me, to say that competition would actually be harmed, because technically you're going from four big providers to three, I think that misses the point entirely, because we're essentially operating in what is a duopoly at this point with AT&T and Verizon. And, and honestly, I mean, just going around the table here real quick, Name the AT and T CEO or name Verizon CEO. I don't think even I, I know Can't. I can't do it. I, I, John Ledger to me is a big part of this deal, and I think if you have a, a combined entity with him at the helm, he is extremely customer centric, somewhat eccentric, <laughs> loves slow cooker Sundays. But I, I do think this deal happens, and I think that ultimately customers or consumers will benefit from it. Uh, just from an entertainment standpoint, I would love for him to. Continue being CEO of this company. Let's get to the stocks on our radar this week. And our man behind the glass, Steve Broido, is going to hit you with a question. Ron Gross, what are you looking at? Steve, do you like wheels? Yes, yes, I do. <laughs> well, I've got a Titan <laughs> International for you, ticker symbol TWI, small cap manufacturer of large industrial wheels. I have talked about it quite a bit, as Steve will attest to. They have finally turned the cyclical quarter. Sales are up 19% uh, this quarter, fifth consecutive quarterly increase, $14 million profit versus a $10 million loss. Love to see that. EBITDA was up 144%. I mentioned that because 144 is another word for gross, and it just makes me happy. <laughs> uh, shares up 13% this week on the news. Still plenty of room to run. It was even higher earlier in the year and still, until uh, we started throwing out around words like tariffs and trade wars. Uh, so, something to keep an eye on there. But I think the stock's got, got some room. Steve, question about Titan International? I understand they're doing some interesting thing with shapes of wheels, some being <laughs> oblong, some being more square. Did you see on Shark Tank? Shark Tank had a, a square wheel that they were trying <laughs> really? to, to hawk on that thing. Can you confirm or deny that they are sitting I, to I the deny wholly okay, and completely. Good. Andy Cross, what are you looking Steve, at? Steve, do you like food? Because Middleby is what I'm looking at, symbol M-I-D-D, maker of food service equipment for uh, commercial and home kitchens. Turbo Chef and Viking are two of their big brands. They just announced an acquisition of Joe Tapp, the maker of Nitro Brew Dispensers, for those of us who like cold coffee. So that's a really fast-growing area. Questions I'm looking for is the top-line growth has really slowed. So asking Celine Basul, who's a very well-respected CEO that we've um, been invested behind for many, many years, um, questions about their growth opportunities. Steve, question about Middleby? For Middleby to grow, do they need to continue to acquire? I know they acquired Viking at some point along uh, five years ago or so. Is is that how this company grows? They do, Steve, yes. Yeah, so they have to make, continue to make those acquisitions. And the Viking one's been a struggle for them. So there's lots of questions about how they're going to continue to grow, especially in a market that, you know, restaurants aren't, people aren't going out to restaurants like they used to. So how is uh, Middleby continue to uh, uh, get that growth back? Jason? Well, Chris, I was thinking yesterday as our new puppy took another dump on our floor, <laughs> that there is just not a whole heck of a lot that he can do to keep me angry with him for very long. It's like for five seconds, then I'm like, you know, I can't be angry with him no matter what he does. Uh, 
you know, IDEX Laboratories reported earnings uh, this week. Another great quarter, ticker is IDXX. This is part of my healthcare and wealth care basket for some of you out there who may know. Uh, top line up 16%, almost all organic growth, and 17% growth in recurring revenue with its pet diagnostics business. And that's the really nice part about this business is its razor and blade model. And I'll tell you, the market is paying up for it. It paying around 50 times full year estimates now. So this is not a cheap stock. It's not one that I would probably go out and buy right now. But I think it's performing well for a reason. Steve, are you walking this dog? I am walking the dog all the time. I tell you, you know what? We've got the invisible fence guy coming by next week, and we're going to put one of those little invisible fences on the inside stairs so he can't get upstairs. At least we'll, we'll minimize the damage. You got a stock you want to add to your watch list, Steve? I think I may go Middleby. Oh, All right, Steve, Ryan Gross, Andy Cross, Jason Moser, thanks for being here, guys. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Coming Chris. up, a conversation with CNBC host Becky Quick. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. This weekend, the investing world turns its eyes to Omaha, Nebraska for Berkshire Hathaway's annual meeting, the highlight of which is the marathon Q&A session with Warren Buffett and his right-hand man, Charlie Munger. One of the moderators for that session is Becky Quick, co-host of CNBC's Squawk Box. She joins me now from New York. Becky, good to talk to you. Chris, it's great to talk to you. You also have a new documentary about Buffett, and I want to get to that in a minute, but let's start with the annual meeting. And We've talked before about the questions that Buffett has gotten over the years about the biggest holdings in Berkshire Hathaway. And a couple of years ago, it was IBM. And it really seems like this year, it almost has to be Wells Fargo with everything that has been going on. Isn't, isn't that really the first question out of the gate? Probably. I mean, the first question will be asked by Carol Loomis. So, she's the one who gets to determine of all the things that are coming in. Um, you know, they're, they're, the Wells Fargo issue has been an ongoing one. He was asked about it last year. He was questioned. He's been questioned in a bunch of the interviews that we've done since then. And his point has always been that they're a hands-off owner, that uh, particularly with the bank, you have to be um, a passive investor when you own that much of it and 10% of it. So, he has stayed hands-off for most of this, but that, that's not going to mean that he's not going to get questioned pretty extensively on it. Yeah, I mean, I think that the fact that this has continued, it, you know, it started with the the fake accounts, and you know, the latest thing is this billion dollar fine, and of course, Wells Fargo will have no trouble paying that fine. But I'm wondering if, since uh, Tim Sloan, the CEO, was in the executive ranks when all of this was going on, I'm not saying he should be shown the door, but I'm wondering if maybe he would benefit from bringing someone in from the outside to be uh, maybe a right-hand man or a right-hand woman, just to deal with some of the compliance stuff. Yeah, well, you may not be saying he should be shown the door, but there are some who have said that, including some in Congress, thinking of Elizabeth Warren and how harshly she's come down on it. Uh, look, he, he's been working his way through this morass, but you're right. He was in the leadership team ahead of time, and the troubles haven't stopped now that he's in the CEO suite. Um, this, these are some long-standing, deep problems at Wells Fargo. It goes well beyond what we initially thought was going to be the situation. It seems to be popping up everywhere, and obviously there are more uh, eyes that are paying attention. Uh, so, they've got to make sure they, they cross every T and dot every I. And, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, my guess is 
Buffett would not go along with an idea of bringing in someone else, or at least wouldn't be somebody who was pushing for that, obviously, since they're going to stay out of this. But, uh, yeah, this is uh, this has been the the never-ending water torture um, of, 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 you know, drip, 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 and, and in some cases floods uh, of bad information that's come out of this and bad practices across the board for a bank that for so long had, had been the gold standard, we, we thought, in terms of compliance and customer relations and, uh, wow, how quickly things can change. So other than Wells Fargo, when you look at the business of Berkshire Hathaway, all of their holdings, what else are you curious about? You know what I'm really curious about today um, is Apple, a huge position that Buffett had built that was such a surprise to all of us because it goes against what he had always talked about, about not getting involved in technology companies. First he did it with IBM, but then with Apple. And it's crazy. This is a guy who still has a flip phone. But when this is a, you know, a decision that he made on his own, not with his lieutenants or anybody else advising him on this. He decided to push into Apple because from his own research, you know, his grandkids, everybody else he talks to, how sticky uh, the iPhone ecosphere is. Um, so after Apple has just come out with its earnings this week and really uh, surprised all the naysayers, everybody who thought that this was going to be a weaker quarter based on what we've been hearing from the suppliers for the iPhone X, kind of blew everybody's expectations out of the water. So we're going to be very curious as to whether he's been continuing to add to that stake or whether he's cooled on the stock. Um, just get his thoughts on that. that uh, that's front and center right now just because we've just gotten the earnings released from Apple. You were interviewing him earlier this year, and one of the topics that came up was uh, Buffett's so-called elephant gun, his desire <laughs> to buy something out there. But of course, he's a value guy. He's looking for a great business at a good price. Historically, does he ever drop any sort of hints at the annual meeting about at least where he's looking when he's thinking about acquisitions for Berkshire Hathaway? No, he is pretty careful. Um, I'm just trying to think back over the years if there's ever been a point where he slipped. I don't think so. I think he holds that stuff pretty close to the vest because he's looking for value. And the second it gets out that Warren Buffett might be considering looking into an arena, uh, stocks tend to take off. People want to get there first. Um, I, I think back to when he started investing in airlines recently. Um, that was a huge shock to people because this was another industry where he had sworn it off. You look through the annual reports over the years, and there have been so many occasions, or at the annual meeting, where he has just said, uh, you should only get into this business if you're an idiot, basically, that you will only lose money. He had a horrible experience with it. He said he'd never go back into airlines, but then changed his mind. And he changed his mind not because he was being fickle, but because he thought the uh, the situation in the industry had changed, that suddenly um, it, it looked like a much better place to be. That the We've heard for years, Gordon Bethune always says, you know, in the airlines, you're only as smart as your stupid competitor. And his, his opinion was that there were fewer stupider competitors around, um, that it was a business where the airlines had gotten much, much more disciplined and where they weren't um, just offering fire sales to get anybody in to buy the seats on things, that they had gotten so much more disciplined in it. So that was a, a Keynesian sort of situation where he looked around and said, I, I changed my opinion because the facts have changed. Um, so that's going to be something. Uh, but again, he didn't tell us until after they'd already bought those stakes. So this is when you get hints from him, 
it's because he's about to have to have to file something with the SEC anyway, or because there are, are things that are coming out. He, he would never give away something if he thought he was going to lose his competitive advantage or drive up prices in an industry or in a stock where he was really interested. Now, that doesn't mean we don't occasionally get a little hint, but it's usually because an SEC filing isn't far behind. All right, let's talk about the new documentary that you worked on uh, Warren Buffett, investor, teacher, icon. It premieres on CNBC on Friday, May 4th at 10 p.m. Eastern. Uh, I got a chance to watch this earlier this week. Uh, congratulations. It's, it's fantastic. And I, what surprised me about the documentary was essentially it's told through the eyes of people that Buffett has influenced. And it's not really a checklist of investors. It's people from everyday walks of life. I guess my first question is, where did you find these people? You know, it, it, it's funny you should say that, because we, we felt like we had done the story uh, time and time again from uh, from high-level investors or CEOs who have been influenced. Um, uh, we wanted to tell the story more of, uh, of kind of the type of people that you run into at the Berkshire annual meeting, because there's 40,000 Berkshire faithful who show up for this thing every year. And a lot of them are just average investors, people who feel like he is teaching them. And, and, and Buffett has said to me several times over the years that if he wants to be remembered for anything, it's to be remembered as a teacher. And he takes that to heart very seriously, not just in teaching investors about things, but he spends time every year meeting with lots of college students. Um, I think there's something like 18 or 20 schools on a rotation that come through and, and, and will travel in groups to Omaha. And he'll sit down and spend a, a day with them, take them to lunch, answer their questions, take pictures with them, and, and answer questions not only in investing, but what he thinks about life and uh, and love or you know any question that these students will throw at him. Um, we wanted to get a little bit at that. So uh, partly what we did was just show up at the annual meeting last year and stand in line or stand outside and talk to the people who were waiting online to get in. Um, we met a lot of people literally standing on line waiting to get in, just walking down the lines, talking to people, getting their stories. In fact, the best stories that we got were the people we we just didn't anticipate. You know, we just start talking to people and they will all have an incredible story to tell you. So that's kind of how we, we came at this, just the types of people who don't always have the spotlight on them, how, how this has changed or affected their lives. Um, and it literally just came from standing in line talking to people last year at the annual meeting. You know Warren Buffett. When you talked with these people, did you learn anything that surprised you? Yeah, <laughs> I learned a lot of things. Um, I, I think the the common theme that went through most of these individuals is that they were looking for something that a lot of them were at times in their life um, where they were struggling or where, where they were looking for the next step or where they were kind of trying to figure out their own lives. And they heard something from Buffett that resonated with them, and plenty of them took it to heart in a big way. So you, you meet people who you think are, are Buffettologists, people who have studied him, people who have paid attention to his moves, particularly people in the investing world who think, okay, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z because this is the way it's laid out. He always makes it sound so easy every year when he gets on stage and says, here's how you should look at investing, here's how you should value a company. And it always sounds easy, but then you walk out of there and you're like, wait a second, what what, it's not nearly as easy as he made me think it was a few minutes ago. What I learned is just how these people have, have taken it to heart and how it has impacted their their lives in such drastic manners. And you have to watch some of these stories to see it. But, um, you know, I, I, I think of Preston Fish, who was a, a soldier serving in Afghanistan and was 
kind of paying attention and in the time that he wasn't um, out in the field while he was there back in the barracks would look at what was happening back home in the financial crisis. So he was kind of using the financial crisis and learning about investing as a something to sidetrack him from an actual war that he was taking place in. And um, when he was going through that, he kept looking for ways to kind of get a better handle on his portfolio that was disintegrating because of the financial crisis, came across Warren Buffett and started teaching himself through that, but then also started talking to some of his uh, his colleagues in uniform and, and teaching and training them, the guys in the barracks, teaching them about what he was learning, turned that into a podcast. And you have to hear him tell the story, but that, that's just one of many people that we ran into. He's now uh, someone who shows, he's got his own podcast. He's a Buffett expert himself, and he shows up every year at the annual meeting with a whole group of um, acolytes who follow him and follow Buffett and Munger. And, uh, you know, it's just amazing how you just, you just kind of see these bands of brothers that are built around some of these things and, and how these folks stick together. Coming up, more with Becky Quick. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill talking with CNBC host Becky Quick. And a lot of the people in the documentary are complete unknowns to anyone who watches it. One person who is known certainly to sports fans is Indomitian Sue, um, mm-hmm. who's a professional football player, played at the University of Nebraska. Um, I thought it was very charitable of you in the documentary when you referred to Indomitian Sue uh, being known for, quote, a very aggressive play on the field. <laughs> He's, yeah, Becky. He's, he's been way nicer in person when you meet him uh, in the street than maybe when you meet him on the gridiron. That's that's one of the most surprising things in the documentary for me is how he's, yeah, he's a completely spoken. Yeah, very soft spoken, very thoughtful on the field. He's one of the mo- he's been fined hundreds of thousands of dollars for just yeah, flat I would, out dirty play. I would not want to come play. up against him in the huddle. I think it was just like, or, or on the field. I would not want to come up against him. Well, and. Uh, Again, very thoughtful off the field and really seems focused on um, helping his fellow athletes get smarter about money, as so many professional athletes struggle with money. Right. And it's a terrible story. You hear about these guys who get called up in the draft. They're suddenly rich. They don't know what to do with their money. They have people who are praying with, uh, praying on them from all directions, giving them all kinds of bad business advice and offering bad business deals. And Domican, I believe his dad is an engineer and his mom was a teacher. And they kind of hammered into him very early on. You have got to make sure you have a second game plan. You've got to be treating this the right way. So he's always had a really good head on his shoulders about trying to analyze the businesses. He's been looking for, since before he got into it. He was looking for his second act. Um, And uh, he was at the University of Nebraska. Buffett, obviously a huge fan. Um, He reached out. A friend told him he should reach out to him. He called Buffett and was shocked when he got the call back. And you have to hear um, his take on some of the business deals, things that he learned from Warren Buffett and how he's applied that. And you're right. He's, he's eager in trying to make sure his, his fellow athletes um, don't fall into some, some of these traps uh, that, that so many young athletes who are so focused on their sport and kind of get taken advantage of. He, he wants to prevent that from happening. So, yeah, not exactly what you would expect given his performance on the field. One of the other takeaways for me watching this documentary is just going back to the annual meeting is the questions that Buffett and Munger get 
a lot of them have absolutely nothing to do with investing. They're, they're more sort of life <laughs> advice. And I, I was thinking, as you and I have talked before, not only do I not think this type of thing continues after Buffett and Munger are gone, I can't imagine any other company pulling off this type of meeting. I mean, as, as respected as Jeff Bezos is, and as much as people may love the business of Amazon, I don't see that same appetite for a five-hour Q&A session and asking Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg or Bob Iger for life advice. Well, see, that's where I, I, I disagree with you a little. I, you're right that it's phenomenal in that there, these these people will line up and wait for hours to be able to ask these things. But that's also because Buffett and Munger have been taking any question, hours and hours of questions, for years. I, I think that if Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg or Jeff Bezos were to do something like that, they would have people who would throng to them too. Because when someone is so successful in business, you can't help but have questions about how they got there, what they did in their life, and what they've learned along the way. It's just how many business leaders would actually do that? Um, Bill Gates will take these questions occasionally online. He'll take questions from people, and he gets all kinds of crazy questions from it. The the amazing thing from, from Warren and Charlie is that they will commit to sit up on stage and not have any idea what question is coming. And that's not to say that they answer every single question. Occasionally, they'll laugh at it or they'll say that's too hard to answer or I can't give you an answer because so many of the questions are, what stock should I buy, right? So they've tried to weed that out a little bit over the year. They're not going to tell people what, the, what stock you should buy. If I'm just starting out, what's the one stock you'd put all your money in? Like, I, I can't tell you. We ask for these questions ahead of time. And, and these, by, by we, I mean the journalists who are there. We don't share any of those questions with Warren and Charlie, but part of what we're there to do is kind of weed out some of those questions saying, what stock should I put all my money in? You know, let's get to a little beyond that. Now, that. That's not to say that we cut out all the life questions, and then there are the shareholders on the floor who are asking questions and can ask whatever they want you know, just based on where they are in line. Um, but I think that you'd have interest. I, I, I think what makes them unique is they will answer any of those questions, and the depth and breadth of their knowledge base is such that they can answer just about any question. I, I, I have a hard time imagining other CEOs agreeing to sit down and put themselves through that sort of scrutiny. But I think if somebody like Jeff Bezos did that, I, they would get um, clamoring like that. The, the unique thing about Warren and Charlie is, A, they've been doing it for years, and B, they both have such an incredible depth and breadth of knowledge that they actually can answer intelligently about just about anything that's thrown their way. All right, last thing, and then I'll let you go. Uh, you've interviewed Warren Buffett. You've interviewed presidents. Earlier this spring, you sat down with someone whose influence is going to continue for decades to come, and that's Frank Oz, the legendary puppeteer <laughs> and the voice of Yoda and Miss Piggy and Cookie Monster. Cookie Monster. How was that, and did you get some props from your children on that interview? Um, first, yes, I, I actually brought in, like, Cookie Monster uh, match game cards that my daughter plays with every day for Frank Oz to sign. She didn't give me props because she's only 18 months old, but yeah, my son thought that was really cool. And by the way, my daughter would think it was cool because Cookie Monster is her favorite. Cookie Monster and Elmo both, but Cookie Monster has been in the lead uh, for the last couple of months. That's her big fascination. So yeah, it was huge, but it was huge for me because I grew up watching Cookie Monster and Sesame Street. And uh, we, we just went to Sesame Street Live right before all of these things. Uh, yeah, he was definitely on my bucket list of people that I wanted to talk to. My only uh, regret was that we didn't have more time with him. Um, 
Ed, we were badgering him a little bit about doing voices. He doesn't do voices um, <laughs> just because it's kind of like monkey dance, right? Um, but he is amazing. Uh, hearing what he thinks about Jim Henson, hearing about his career, how he got into it, which he said it was all kind of an accidental thing. But he's still, even though he can do just about anything he wants, he is still doing what, what interests him and what makes him fun. And he's still experimenting, which is what he's doing with this um, new release of his movie on a website instead of giving it to another distributor, which obviously there'd be tons of distributors clamoring to get to be the one to, to put it out. He wanted to do it himself. And he said that kind of takes them back to their hippie rebel roots and that, you know, he's never strayed too far from that. He's an amazing guy. The CNBC documentary Warren Buffett Investor Teacher Icon premieres Friday, May 4th at 10 p.m. Eastern. Becky Quick, always great to talk to you. Have a great time in Omaha. Chris, thank you. I look forward to talking to you every year. So thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Remember, you can subscribe to Motley Fool Money wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play. And if you like the show, please consider leaving a review. It helps other investors find the show. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Motley Fool Money. Our engineer is Steve Broido. Our producer is Mac Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>